0: Bibles to the book of Malachi hope you all enjoyed two weeks ago we started the series and last week we took a break Um, it happens Um, we got a lot to do today this is a big text and so we're gonna jump in pretty quick Um, let me just give a couple of reminders as we're coming in to the book of Malachi Malachi is about a people who are religiously skeptical. They're discouraged because of the way life is around them at this moment. Their discouragement has led them to be disillusioned about who God is. Their disillusionment then about God has led them to doubt his goodness, his character, and his very promises, And so that is the context in which we're coming in. And I I want you to think about how easily it is for us to relate to this, to them at this moment. We have a people who life hasn't gone what it's supposed to be or how they expected. And so they've questioned, God, do you love me? Where are you? I just want to encourage you, just think about it. Have you ever had that type of question? Have you ever just looked at your life and gone, this isn't really how I planned everything. I didn't know that this is where I would be today and these would be the events that have happened. In fact, I was thinking about that this morning and going like, man, two years ago, I had no idea we'd be burying my mom. And just what that led to and, and the, the domino effect of that in my life and in other people's lives. And you can wrestle with that and go, how did we get here today? Because that's not necessarily how I would have planned it. And if we're not careful then we'll be in the very same shoes as the book of Malachi where the Israelites are going, God, are you there? I don't feel like you love me. And so I encourage you I, I imagine most of us can can place ourselves in that situation easily. If you can't at this moment because you're like man life life is awesome. Praise God. Love that, but remember this, you're either going in a trial in a trial or coming out of a trial. So in time, you're going to be right here at some moment and you're going to be faced with, how is it that God loves me? And so either this sermon will comfort you now or equip you and strengthen you for those moments. Um, so I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. and We're going to read verses 1 through 5. We stand when we re- read God's word because this is God's word. And it is inerrant, It is inspired, it is infallible, comes with his full authority for the purpose of equipping us for every good work. Chapter one, verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the inspired and authoritative word that you have given us. And Lord, as we come into this text which touches on deep and weighty truths, God, I pray that we would see the joy in them. I pray that this text would bring great comfort to all of us who are here. And I pray that while there is ways for sin to want to pervert the truths that we have here and twist them. God, I pray for your spirit just to give clarity today through the preaching that we would hear your word, the way you have spoken it, the way you have given it to us, that that we'd be equipped for all that you have given us. Lord, give us an understanding of your love, your great, unconditional, free, gracious love. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Well, the text, the title today is The Immeasurable Greatness of God's Love. And the main point, what, what I really just want us to be able to see is we rejoice in God's love because he has freely chosen us for salvation in past eternity. And so that's, that's the point that I hope that we see as we come through. So it starts out. God declares his love for his people. That's, that's where the text starts. Malachi 1, 2, God says, I have loved you. And it's really easy to read right past it, but I want you to just think about those four words. I have loved you. Those words are not being spoken by your spouse, by your child, by your parent, by any, by any related Person in your life they're not being spoken by uh, your boss or leader in the United States or any leader in the world they're being spoken by God the creator of everything he in his infinite power love and grace and mercy is speaking to his people and he declares to them his love In fact, in 1 John 4, 8, we're told that God is love, so everything he does is an act of his love, and so he declares to his people, I have loved you. And how does Israel respond? To the infinite love of God being declared to them? They reply, how have you loved us? And so a couple weeks ago, during the kind of intro message to this book, we said, imagine a husband, he comes home from work. He walks through the door, he sees his wife, he walks up to her, he embraces her, he looks her square in the eyes and says, "I love you." To which she pushes back, crosses her arms and says, "How?" With skepticism dripping from her lips. That's what just happened right here. So why Why is Israel so skeptical of God's love? Why do they respond like this? Well, remember, back in, uh, they returned from Babylonian exile, so they spent 70 years in Babylon. They returned in 539 BC. In 516 BC, they rebuilt the temple. Around 450, through Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But they're still under foreign rule. The great Davidic king has not arisen. He's not freed them from all their oppressors. The land is not flowing with milk and honey. And this temple that they rebuilt is nothing like the grandeur and luster that it had before. And so they have, they, they have not seen God's promises come true. And as time continues to go forward, their hope and their faith continues to fade like the setting sun. And so if we can summarize their situation, because they don't feel loved, and because their situation around them is not what they desired, they conclude that God does not love them. God has failed to meet their expectations. Now I want you to think is this not why we fight and quarrel with one another? I just think through that. We get angry. When our expectations are not met. When you don't love me how I want and when I want, then you failed me. Or at least that's often the way we communicate and the way we act and treat one another. This is why marriages end in divorce. This is why people quit their jobs. This is why we're surrounded by people on every side, just broken relationships. And really, what it is, Israel here has become so incredibly inward Focused. They're looking at how does everything affect me? In fact, I thought uh, my other title was Stop Looking at Yourself. Because that's what Israel's doing, but I don't make titles like that, right? I mean, I told Raymond, I was like, I can't go with this title because I, I just don't make titles like that. Um, but that's really the truth. They're just so inward looking, just looking at themselves. How does everything make me feel? Because it hasn't met my desires and my expectations, then everything is now seen through this twisted lens of bitterness and anger. And so Israel goes, how have you loved me? And we do the very same thing with the people around us when we are more focused on how you love me and how you make me feel. So what does God do? God points Israel back in time to two twin boys, which is exactly how we would have answered, right? Right? God says, well, let me tell you, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I mean, we could just say amen and go right now, right? So, we got a little work ahead of us. Let me first explain some words, and then we're going to explain the relationship of Esau and Jacob. So, let's explain the words love and hate. The word love is does not merely describe an emotion of God. It does not describe just simply warm feelings that he has towards his people. The word love refers to his covenantal love with his people. When God says, I have loved Jacob, he says, I have determined to love him. Or to say it this way, I have chosen to place my affection on him. And thus the word hate does not describe an an irrational emotion of God. Or some type of just simple anger that God has. Rather, it refers to his rejection of Esau. This is similar to how Jesus uses the word hate when he talked about discipleship in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Some of you know this passage. This is one of those passages that kind of always makes us step back and, and wonder, what does this mean? But Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not, <clears throat> does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what do we do when we read that? We step back, wait a minute. And yet what he's saying, we must, when we choose Jesus and prioritize Jesus and say, I will be devoted to Jesus, we are saying, I'm not choosing anyone else. I'm rejecting every." other relationship and the priority of loving Jesus and then only through Jesus then do we love others, other people. Jesus is calling us to reject all other relationships and priority of him so how is it then that God's love for Jacob and hatred of Esau now is meant to bring comfort to God's people hundreds of years later? To know that we have to know our Bibles I encourage you, read your Bibles, Genesis to Revelation. Do so at whatever frequency you're able to, once a year or every two years. Make your way through God's word. We must know his word. And so to to remind us just of the storyline of God's word, in Genesis 1, God creates a man named Adam. He creates him in his image, and Adam is to go forth with Eve and, and to procreate and to fill the world with image bearers who will glorify God. So the mission of man is that God will be glorified in all of creation. But rather than glorify God, we see that Adam sins against God. He rejects God because he wants his glory rather than God's glory. And then what we read, because of, because of Adam's sin and everyone comes from Adam, then you and I are born with now this sinful nature, which means we're all born with the desire to worship ourselves, to pursue our glory rather than God's glory. And this is the problem of all of mankind. In fact, this problem, this sin problem, is what explains why there's pain and why there's trials and why there's suffering and all of the difficulties here in this world. And so what does God do in response to sin? Well, God shows his wrath against sinful mankind, but he's going to wash the earth. Just like we would wash dishes so they would be clean, he washes the earth. But once all the waters re- reside, what we see is man is still sinful. They continue To reject God, the heart of man has not been cleansed by the washing of the world. And so, all of humanity is sinful. And at this point, God chooses a man named Abram. Out of all sinful humanity, everyone rejects God, Abram included. But God chooses him and says, I choose you that through you I will now create a people in which I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And so then Abram, eventually, his name goes to Abraham, and he has a son named Ishmael. But God says, no, the promises will not come through Ishmael. But when Abram is 100 and his wife is 90, way past childbearing age, to make sure that the promise is made known by God's grace, he gives him a son named, you remember? Isaac. Everyone's like, wait, is it Isaac? Yep, it's Isaac. You're right. It's Isaac. And so now Isaac... He marries, and he has two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob, born at the same time. Esau is the firstborn by minutes, seconds, but he squeezes his way out, beats his brother. And so under tradition, at this time, Esau would be the rightful heir of all the blessings that the father had. So the blessings that Abraham had have now been transferred to Isaac, which will now be transferred to Esau, because he's the firstborn. But God says, no, I choose Isaac, or I choose Jacob, not Esau. And it's through God choosing Jacob that now we have the birth of the nation of Israel. And what we see all throughout the storyline of God's word is that God specifically chose those whom he would use to bring about Israel and ultimately the birth of his son Jesus Christ who would redeem all those who believe in him. Now still a little muddy like why why are we referring to Esau and Jacob as a means of comforting, substantiating the love of God for Israel in the book of Malachi. But this is where Paul in the New Testament refers to Esau and Jacob as a means of helping us understand our salvation and the love of God for us. So this is what it means. It's kind of a big passage. So I think it's up on the screen. Romans 9 verses 8 through 16. It says, This means This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is Isaac Job's son, it will be Isaac, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. But because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, that it, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So according to Paul, God did not choose Jacob because of anything good in Jacob's life. Well, but it says that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So he says it has nothing to do about their works, nothing to do about their performance. They merited nothing. God does not look down the corridors of time and say, well, how good of life do they live? And if they, they move the balance this way, then he chooses them. But rather, before they had done anything... So that's not on the basis of any works or any merit. It says that God chose Jacob and loved him. In fact, what's interesting is when you look at the life of Jacob, he's a cheat and a swindler. He's not really the guy any of us would go, man, if we were to choose whose God's promises are going to come through, it's definitely going to be Jacob. No, in fact, we're probably going to go, Jacob's not the guy. But it's not about our performance. It's not about our work. It's not about anything within us. God is saying it's about him. And so we, we have at least two reasons why God chose Jacob, given to us, at least two, here in Romans 9. Number one, because of election. Verse 11 says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about election in a few moments. Because of election. Number two, because of his mercy. Verse 15. 15 says, because God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and have compassion on whom he will have compassion. What he's saying is, God is free and sovereign to give grace and mercy to whom he chooses to give grace and mercy to. Nothing compels God. Verse 16, if we could summarize that, I would say, salvation is absolutely based upon the mercy and grace of God and not because of any human efforts. So, why did God choose Abram and Isaac and then choose Jacob over Esau to bless with his covenantal love? To show that his electing love, his grace and mercy is free and unconditional. Remember, all of of humanity is sinful. No one deserves the grace of God, yet God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, God chose Jacob, God chose to work through the people of Israel, eventually then through his son, Jesus. Think about the reason that Israel continues to exist, as as Malachi is writing to them. And they've experienced the blessings of God and they receive the promises of God. It's not because of how they look, it's not because of their power, it's not because of anything done within them. The only reason they have not been fully destroyed by Babylon or any other nation is because God has chosen to love them. So if we return to the question how does God's love for Jacob and hatred of Esau? Prove his love to the Israelites in the book of Malachi because God has chosen to love them, not because they deserve it, but because of his free electing love. He points them back to his character, to the freeness of his grace and mercy and says, I chose you at the very beginning of this nation where it has been birthed from. and said, I have chosen you as my people. He reminds them of his free unconditional love. Now, ultimately, what we're talking about is the doctrine of election. Now, unfortunately, when we begin to, to embark on this doctrine, it's couched in controversy and arguments, and some might say, well, this is like one of those lofty doctrines that only like, really like big-headed theologians should spend time in. Um, others would say, um, there's no practical relevance to this type of doctrine. Should we really preach on it? But I want you to think, what is the condition of Israel at this time that they're being written to? They're weak, they're immature in their faith, and they're skeptical of God. So of all that's in God's arsenal, all the doctrines that he can pull from right now, what is the means he chooses to come alongside the person who says, God, I, I, don't, I don't think you love me. He chooses the doctrine of election. So I would say this doctrine is extremely applicable. And it's one we really need to understand. And so, in fact, one, one theologian said this about this doctrine. The doctrine of, love, of election is often found at the heart of heated debates. But it was designed to be found in the heat of battle. The precious truth of election is a serrated point on the double-edged sword of the spirit. It tells us of God's love for his children, a love we did not earn and cannot lose. It slays dragons, it soothes the saints, it makes principalities and powers flee, it cuts temptation down to size, it detaches idols, it changes us. Election is a beautiful and magnificent doctrine that's supposed to bring comfort, not controversy. So today, what I want to do is, from our text and from God's Word, I just want us to give four magnificent truths that there are about this doctrine that should move us to joy. But to do that, I want to start with just a definition of, um, of election. So I have this up on the screen, and this comes by, by a theologian named Joel Beakey, which I, I think he did a good job. It's, it's a thorough definition. It says, election is that aspect of God's eternal decree of all things in which he sovereignly and lovingly selects according to the incomprehensible counsel of his will alone and nothing good foreseen in us, those whom he he will effectually call, justify, sanctify, and glorify by union with Jesus Christ. For the Father entered into an eternal covenant with Christ that he should be the mediator of grace applied by the Spirit through God's appointed means to the praise of God's glory. Alone. That's a, that's a robust definition of election. Um, so what I want to do is now just say, okay, so there's there's the definition of it. So why is this good? How does this bring comfort and joy that we should be a people and not say I want to keep election at arm's distance? And and I do realize that there's there's deep questions that are going to be wrestled with here, and we're definitely not getting into all the questions. So you. Might leave here with more questions than you came in with. Sorry, Um, but if anything, in spite of those questions, which which are good and we need to wrestle through, that we would all see this is election to this is the doctrine we need to embrace. It might take us time to grow in our love for it, but it is worthy endeavor to embark on this doctrine. Number one, God's electing love guarantees our salvation. I want you to think about this. So I have a couple texts here. Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, elected. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's the connection between predestined and justified? If he predestined, you are called, you are justified. Unbreakable chain. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So you just have to say, when were we chosen according to the inspired apostle Paul? Before the foundation of the world. So let me just give you two implications of this. Number one, election says you are not saved because of your merit. That's the point that Paul's making in Romans 9. You are not saved because of any action you did. There's nothing about your life that swayed God in your favor. He goes man, you actually do make my team look better. I should bring you over to God's team because I could really use someone like you. You are not saved because you lived a morally better life than others. This is why in Romans 9, God says, Jacob was chosen chosen before anything was done. has nothing to do with your morality, which means there's absolutely no boasting in your election. So there's no one here that we can say, well, I know that I'm saved in Jesus Christ, therefore I'm better. No. Because if you truly understand your salvation, you know there was nothing in you that caused God to save you. Simply his grace and mercy. So that's one implication. Implication number two. And this is really good, and we really need to know this. Election says God's love is greater than your sin. For those whom God has elected, their sin will not keep them out of the kingdom of God. So let me, let me just explain this a little bit. You might be here today, and you wrestle with pornography. Or perhaps you've experienced great physical or emotional abuse. Or maybe you're the one who, com- who has committed physical or emotional abuse to someone else. You might be here and you struggle with cutting. You may have had one abortion. You've had many abortions. Whatever your sin is, however big you feel that your sin might be, what we sang earlier, God's love is stronger. That's the beauty of election. When God's electing love comes upon you, it washes you clean. That there would be no sin that his love does not conquer. His electing love is the brilliant light that chases away the darkness in your soul. That's the beauty of election. So let me just illustrate this from God's word. If you guys uh, don't know if you've been in your Bibles in Second Chronicles lately, 2 Chronicles 33, highly recommend it for your reading later. Um, we read about King Manasseh. Some of you are like, I know that guy. Some of you are like, no clue. Manasseh is like the worst king of all of Judah. He's the worst guy. He worshipped false gods. He placed altars in the temple of God. He dealt with sorcerers, omens, and fortune tellers. He burned his own son as a sacrifice to a false god. This is what God has to say about Manasseh. 2 Chronicles 33, 9. Manasseh led Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So so get the picture here. All these pagan nations surround Israel. And all they do is, is glorify themselves and reject the glory of God. All they do is sin all day long. And Manasseh, the king of God's people leads his people to do more sin than all of these other people. That's this king. Burns his own son. According to human standards, if anyone's not going to be saved, we're going to say it's Manasseh. We're all putting our vote towards that guy. And if anyone would think their sin's are going to kick them out of the kingdom, it's Manasseh. He's going to say, well, look, I've done way too much. And there are some of you here today that you say that I've done too much. Or you know someone who has said that, well, God may may have died for other people, but I know he didn't send his son to die for me. If I told you what I have done, then Jesus would run from me. And yet what we're told at the end of chapter 33 is that Manasseh comes to faith. In fact, it says that he prays to God and God hears him. And answers him. At the end of his life, there's a great reform that Manasseh begins, that he would lead the people of God back to worshiping God. Listen to what Spurgeon says on the glory of election. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Do you see the beauty of this doctrine? Look, if you're here today, and you're wrestling with sin, and you're saying, look, there's no way God would want me. My sins are are too many. The doctrine of of election crushes That type of mindset says no, because it doesn't have anything to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with his grace and mercy. We get so incredibly me-centered, where everything is about me and how I see myself or how you affect me, and then I want to read God's love into the lens of how I see myself. It's exactly the wrong way we we go. We start with who God is, and he says, I have loved you before creation. And I have determined to love you and to save you. We are saved because God has chosen us. No one stumbles their way into the kingdom. You say, but I thought I chose God. Listen, election does not erase your choosing. It simply explains the chronology of your choosing. We chose God because he has first freely chosen to place his saving love on us. That's what we rejoice in. Number two, God's electing love guarantees our holiness. We're going to go back to the first verses we just looked at. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why were you chosen? To live how you want? To stay in your sin? No, to be blameless, to be holy and blameless before him. Look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. We just read this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Two things here. You are predestined, chosen, before the creation of the world, that you be made into the image of the Son. And then what's the unbreakable chain between predestined, and glorification. Do you see it? All those who are predestined are called. All those who are called are justified. All those who are justified are glorified. See, some people will say, now, hold on here. If we're going to talk about election and that everything is about God and him choosing, then does it doesn't really matter if we do anything. And we automatically want to just go right back to, to us. And we, we try to work it out, which these are Good questions. But God's election is never meant to move us towards passivity. In fact, I want you to think about it. When you know that your spouse loves you, and you're enraptured by their love, does that move you towards passivity, or does that move you towards affection to love them? It moves you towards them, not away from them. In fact, think about this. In Philippians chapter 2, God says, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he says you and I are to do. And then he says, because it's God who works in you. Why is it that God works in you so you and I will work out our salvation? Because in Philippians 1.6, he says, God is determined to complete the work he began in you. He promises. If he saved you, he will bring it to completion. What is completion? That you would be glorified. So why does he work in you? So that you would obey him. And live a life of obedience to be holy and blameless and be conformed into the image of the Son. Never does election move us towards passivity. Nothing in the Bible ever uses that kind of language. Rather, we know that because we have been elected, that we are no longer a slave to sin. And there is victory over Sin. I want you to think about this. As Christians, we get discouraged at times. I just want you to think where you're at right now. Is there a sin that you're just feeling kind of trapped in? Or maybe you look back at your life and and you know of a time where you you feel like there was a sin that was like a mountain before you. And you go, "Is, is there any hope? Am I just destined to suffer under this sin for the rest of my life? There's no victory in it at all. Is that is that the mindset that I'm to have? Is that the understanding of the Christian life? Maybe, maybe that's lying. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you just feel like anger is just always your gut reaction. It's always your default response. Maybe it's depression. And you just wonder, can I, can I get out of this? Is there hope? Maybe it's anxiety, just worried. All the time, and you're just to the point you're going, I I don't know if there's any hope. I guess I'm just a worrisome person. Maybe it's pornography, and you go, I'm so entrapped in it. I don't want to do it. And you say the very things of Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I feel like I just keep doing. I mean, is that not relatable? Do you not ever just wrestle with just sin? And you go, So am I just simply a slave to sin? Election says no. Election says you were saved, that you would be justified that you'd be conformed into the image of Christ, that you would live a holy and blameless life. Election says you have been chosen before creation, that you would not be a slave to sin, but upon your faith in Christ, that you would be adopted into his family. The power of sin would be broken in your life, and you would have the forgiveness of Christ, knowing that his spirit works in you, empowering you, and strengthening you to give you grace every single day that you live. It's election that fuels the engine of obedience in your life. You go, I know that I've been chosen, therefore this sin will not dominate my life, but God's grace does. And his love strengthens me so that I will not be a slave to it. Now here on this earth, we will always experience the presence of sin. But as Christians, we're no longer under the power of sin. And that is a joy to know and to remember daily. Election says you can fight against sin with confidence because you know God is completing the work he began in you. And that work is that you would be glorified, that you will be conformed to the image of the Son. Number three, God's electing love guarantees his judgment on the wicked. So let's turn back to Malachi. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, oh, they can rebuild, but I'll tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Listen, the Edomites descend from Esau. And through scripture, you just read through scripture who these Edomites are. One theologian said they personify the pride of self-centered existence. In fact, the Edomites are are, are so wicked, they they require an entire book of the Bible dedicated to them. Do you you know that? Do you know what book it is? Test time? Come on, someone know. Who said it? Obadiah. Robert Bode wins. I don't know what you win. Obadiah. Listen to what Obadiah chapter 3 and 4. Obadiah is a rebuke. To the Edomites. This is what it says. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. They leave, They lived in this rocky area on the hilltops. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Listen. What we have here is God is determined to love those whom he has chosen. But what we also he is all those who reject him, he determines to judge. Eventually, the Edomites are destroyed by the, the Nabatean Arabs around 400 B.C. And what, so we need to remember, our God is patient and he's slow to anger. He restrains his anger so the elect will hear the gospel and believe. So... Never mistake God's patience with the wicked as though his justice has failed. That's what, that's what the Israelites are doing in Malachi. Israel or Edomites are still alive. Evil still persists. Therefore, God's justice has failed. Or let us not doubt God's love because evil is around us. That's also what Malachi is doing. Well, maybe, maybe God doesn't love us, Because all these evil nations were still under this foreign rule. What we learn here in scripture, in the book of Malachi, all the way to the book of Revelation, is that all who reject God will be judged. Malachi, this is what we read at the end of chapter 4, verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them. It will leave them neither root nor branch. No matter what the wicked do, those who reject God, those who persist in their evil, those who say we do not love Jesus, we will not submit to Jesus, while they might flourish here on earth, we know that there's a day coming. And while we wait for that day, we can rest knowing God's patience is good as he's bringing the elect into the kingdom. But just as his election guarantees the glorification of all believers, of all saints, it also guarantees the destruction of all those who reject him. So we can't come to that peace. Lastly, God's electing love guarantees that his name will be praised by the nations. Look at chapter 1, verse 5, Malachi. God says to Israel, your own eyes shall see this. Your own eyes will see the destruction of Edom. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Listen, Israel is reminded that God works not only in Israel, but among the nations. Again, let's come back to Israel is so self-centered at this moment. Everything is about them. What is is their conditions? How do they feel? And so God's just reminding them he's working well beyond the borders of Israel. Well beyond the borders of Israel. So that he is actually bringing about a people, not only in Israel, but of all nations, of all tribes and all languages, that they will surround him and they will worship him. This is what we read in Malachi 1.14. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God is not only working with his people in Israel, he is working in every nation. Do you know that? But we get so upset and angry when we're only thinking what is God doing in my life right now as if it's our timetable and we're the only ones he's working with but God is working in every tribe in every tongue in every nation and every language on this earth that he would bring about his elect where his son will then return and gather all those who have believed in him and this is what we read in revelation 7 This is a view of heaven. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Listen, God did not send his son Jesus into this earth so that his throne might be, be surrounded by every tribe tongue nation language he sent his, thro- his son into this world as the guarantee that his throne will be surrounded by every tribe every tongue every nation every language this is why we're bold in sharing the gospel because we know when we share the gospel the elect will believe we know that. That's the purpose of election. That's the fuel of elect, or that's the fuel of missions, is the doctrine of election. We know that for all whom God has placed his merciful, unconditioning, electing love, they will believe. Without election, there's no hope for missions. There's no hope. You go talk to missionaries, they will come back and say, if it was not for this was Hudson Taylor, if it was not for the doctrine of election, I would have quit a long time ago the founder of Inland Missions in China. That was his testimony. So I want to, I want to close, though, by, by simply answering one question. It's the question that always gets brought up. What if I'm not one of the elect? Does it really matter what I do? Because that, that always wants to sneak into our head. Listen. We need to listen carefully. Nowhere in Scripture are we told who the elect are. Nowhere. In Scripture, that knowledge alone rests in the mystery of God's perfect, sovereign rule. Nowhere. Nowhere are we told any. We have no indication. We can't look at people and go, that guy's a Remember, Manasseh, none of us are saying that guy's in. Apostle Paul has the same testimony in Galatians 1, if you go and read that later. Same testimony. He's out persecuting and killing Christians until the day that God's love, which came for him before creation, He was saved. So what do we do? This is what we know. Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.11. Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You want to know if you're the elect? Believe in Jesus. You want to believe in Jesus. You're saying, well... But well, how do I know? Believe in Jesus. Everyone who calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. And if you are saved, then you know that you've been chosen by God and you will be glorified. Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven and came to die on the cross. And on the cross, he bore the sins of all who would believe in him. He paid the price in full. What we see in Scripture, is Jesus is the only Savior of the world. He's the only hope of the world. If you want to know if you are elect... Believe in Jesus today. That's the answer. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that Jesus died. He rose again, victorious over sin, death, and Satan. Believe, that, believe in Jesus that you'd be justified, sanctified, and one day glorified. John 10, 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. Will you follow Jesus? If so, believe in him today. Believe in Christ. So if you wonder, as Malachi, the people in Malachi says, if you want to go, how do I know you've loved me? Believe in Jesus, look to the cross, and trust in Jesus. If you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know that your name was written in the book of life before creation was ever made. And you can rest in that assurance. And that resting doesn't move you towards passivity. It moves you towards activity that we would live an obedient life for the very glory of God. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then know that you are loved by God. Know that the only reason you profess faith in Jesus is because he has poured out his unconditional saving love upon you. You did not deserve this love. You've done nothing to earn it. God freely chose you. I know this doctrine brings up questions. If you have questions, I would love to talk with you about them. The elders would love to talk with you about them. But I hope what you see is while there are questions, and it's good to wrestle with those, this doctrine that we see throughout Scripture is meant to comfort us and to move us to celebration in what God has done, that we would have confidence in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our living daily for Jesus, so that we can rejoice in God's love, knowing that he has freely chosen us for salvation and past eternity. If you want to know God has loved you, believe in Jesus Christ, and you know you are saved. I'm going to pray, um, and we're going to take communion, and the ushers will come and dismiss you. And I want to encourage you, I know there's questions. If you have those questions, write them down. Um, Again, we'd love to talk with you about them. But don't miss the joy in this doctrine today. Because of questions that we have. Our God is infinite. We always have questions about God. But I encourage you to write them down and begin just praying over them. I'd love to talk with you about them. But see the joy of this doctrine that we have been given by God. Let's pray. Father, Father, you have demonstrated your love for us by the sending of your son, Jesus that we would know all who believe in you are saved. And Lord, I pray that we rejoice knowing that our salvation is not ultimately rooted in anything we have done, in any merit that we have performed, but simply out of your free, sovereign grace. And so God, we thank you for your amazing grace that saves us. Your amazing grace that has freed us from the bonds of sin, broken the chains of sin, that we'd be adopted into your family and that your love would fuel our obedience knowing that you are working inside of us, bringing about our sanctification, making us conformed to the image of your son, that we would know we are not in bondage to sin, but we have been freed and adopted into your family, that your spirit resides in us, that we have victory over sin because of your son Jesus. God, may the truth of this doctrine Flood our soul with joy and celebration. And God, as we do have questions, I pray that that Satan would not be given room to move those questions to doubt and bitterness. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in us, that our questions would bring about humility and a desire to grow in our knowledge of your word, that we would increase in our love and faith and worship in you. In your name, Jesus, amen.